Isn't that an amazing story? I mean, it has all the elements of a great story. Compelling characters. You've got a victim left stripped and beaten, half dead on the side of the road. You have religious professionals who just walk on by despite the need. And of course, you have the unlikely hero who comes and rescues the man, a man known as an enemy, yet in compassion and mercy reaches out and cares for the man's need. Yeah, the story of the Good Samaritan. I think the Good Samaritan is just kind of one of those stories that's known by a lot of people. We've been doing this series over the summer on the parables of Jesus. There's 46 of them. And I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I think the Good Samaritan is probably one of the most well-known parables of all 46. Uh, Sure, there's some other ones that are popular as well. The, The prodigal son, a lot of people would know that one. The lost sheep, perhaps. But there's a lot of parables that the average person perhaps, you know, if you went to your neighbor and said, have you heard the parable about the persistent widow and the judge, the crooked judge? They'd say, the what? Or the unfruitful fig tree? They'd say, no, I haven't heard of that one. But if you go to your neighbor and you say, have you heard about the Good Samaritan? There's a good chance that even if they're not connected today to a church situation, that they probably know something about the Good Samaritan. If you look up Good Samaritan in the dictionary, there's actually a definition for it. Merriam-Webster says this, a Good Samaritan is a person who helps other people and especially strangers when they have trouble. In Ontario, did you know this? We have a Good Samaritan law. How many of you knew that? A Good Samaritan law. Yeah. So if you see somebody in need, you can go and help them. If if they're in medical uh, trouble or that, you can go and help them without the fear of being sued for helping them. It's called the Good Samaritan law. Most provinces have it, except for a couple. And, uh, you know, I think when we think about Good Samaritans, we even think about modern-day Good Samaritans. It's part of our culture. I was researching a little bit last week, and I just typed in Google, modern Good Samaritan, and a Times article popped up reminding us about the L.A. riots that happened back in 1992 over the Rodney King verdict. And here's, here's an account of some modern-day Good Samaritans from the Times. The Reginald Denny story. Taking a shortcut off the Santa Monica freeway down Normandy Avenue was nothing out of the ordinary for 33-year-old Reginald Denny. In the late afternoon of April 29, 1992, he simply had loaded up his 18-wheeler and headed down the road driving for his employer. Little did he know that he would drive smack into the middle of an angry mob looking for vengeance. As his rig crossed Florence, a group of rioters, enraged over the verdict of the Rodney King case, rushed towards him, pulled him out of his cab, and beat him to within an inch of his life. The attack ended when Damian Williams took a cinder block and bashed Denny's skull fracturing it in 91 places and causing brain damage. The Times goes on to say, the only reason he probably did not die that day was because four South Central residents, Bobby Green, Lee Ewell, Titus Murphy, and Terry Barnett, who saw the entire incident on television, raced to the scene, 
Despite the risk to their own lives, they grabbed Denny, put him back in his cab, and drove him to a nearby hospital where doctors were able to save his life. Modern day Good Samaritans. I mean, it's a phrase that that people use all the time. Have you thought about being a Good Samaritan? So when we think about the story of the Good Samaritan, we just watched it for a moment ago, it's easy for us to answer the question, what's the point of the Good Samaritan story? Well, surely it's to be a better neighbor. And as Jesus said, go and do likewise. That's what I'm supposed to do. That we'd be kinder, better neighbors, to love our neighbors, including strangers, including our enemies. Perhaps it's to break down cultural barriers. I mean, the whole Samaritan Jew thing was not going well at that particular time. Maybe that's the point of the story. To fight injustice and to champion social justice. Certainly to love our our enemies. And ultimately, when we look at the story, we see Jesus, don't we, in the ultimate, as the ultimate good Samaritan. So yes, there are some really good lessons about the story of the good Samaritan. But here's my question to you. Why did Jesus tell that story? Why did Jesus tell the story of the Good Samaritan? Have you ever thought about that? Many of us know the story of the Good Samaritan, but do we know the, do we know the story that happened that was in the context of the Good Samaritan? And that's what I want us to look at tonight. What's really the point of the, st- of the story? I'm going to invite us to turn to Luke chapter 10. We find the story of the Good Samaritan, and the story within the story in chapter 10 of Luke, verses 25 to 37. Let's stand for a moment as we read the Scripture together. It's on the screen. Uh, If you want to follow along in your word as well, that would be great. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho was going down when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's pray together. Father, we are, we are here today worshiping you and now with your word open and I'm just asking, Lord, that our ears would be open and our eyes would be very much open, Lord, to see you 
the great king, the sovereign one, high and lifted up. And Lord, that we would hear from you, not words of man. Lord, I pray I would be faithful to your word. And uh, Lord, I pray that together we would leave here with a clear sense, Lord, a renewed understanding of what you are calling us to as your people. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So as I said, I want us to look at the story that surrounds the story of the Good Samaritan. And in the story that surrounds the story of the Good Samaritan, we have two characters. We have a lawyer and we have Jesus. Those are the two characters. And the setting is Jesus' teaching. And typically in that day, the students would be sitting down around the teacher. And when someone wanted to ask a question, they would stand, and when the teacher was ready, he would acknowledge the student that was standing and allow them to ask the question. So the scripture tells us that we have a lawyer. What kind of lawyer was he, you might ask? Well, he was an expert in the Old Testament law, in the laws of Moses. He knew them well. He was considered to be an expert. And as we read the account, we see he stands... And Jesus allows him to ask his question. And in fact, as you read the story around the Good Samaritan story, you'll see that there's a bunch of questions. The first question is put out by the lawyer. And he asks this, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? It's a decent question. It's a good question. We'll come back to that. And then Jesus, instead of just answering the question, Jesus asks the next question. And he asks this to the lawyer. How do you read the law? What's written in the law? As we continue to go through the story, we see that there's two more questions. Later on, the lawyer asks this question, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells them the story of the Good Samaritan, and he finishes with a question. Jesus asks the fourth question, which of the three do you think was a neighbor? So let's start with the first question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? I mean, it seems like a decent question. The Old Testament promised eternal life. Jesus taught about eternal life. It was something in that day and age that was, that was thought about, that was talked about. The Jews were very interested in it. The religious establishment was very, very interested in it. In fact, they thought, of course, that their ceremonies and their traditions their circumcision even, would qualify them for eternal life. And so here, this expert in the law, I want you to notice this, seeking to test Jesus. Notice in verse 25, we see the motive of the lawyer. It's not just to learn. Verse 25 of chapter 10 says, the lawyer seeking to test Jesus stands up and asks this question. In fact, throughout the New Testament, we see often that the religious establishment was seeking to trip Jesus up, seeking to test him, and perhaps this was another one of those moments. Verse 25 is really clear about his motives, seeking to test Jesus. So he asks this question about eternal life. D.A. Carson, though, points out this observation about the question, what do I have to, what, do to inherit. Now think about that for a moment. Pastor Calvin was picking on Harley last week. If I came to Harley and say, Harley, what do I have to do to inherit your great wealth? 
all of your camels and all of your cows. I'm a farmer now, so I'm interested in cows. Harley, what do I have to do to inherit your family's estate? Well, Harley's going to say to me, you can't do anything because you ain't part of my family. Calvin would say that better, wouldn't he, Harley? (laughs) When we think about inheritance, inheritance is for family members, right? Inheritance goes to the family. And yet, this lawyer says, what do I have to do to inherit? Interesting observation about the question. D.A. Carson says the question is somewhat flawed because right from the very beginning, the lawyer thinks he can do something to inherit something that's available to God's family. But it's interesting that Jesus responds. And rather than just giving a straight response, Jesus responds with a question back to the expert. How do you read the law? What's written in it? And how do you interpret it? And then, of course, as we read, the lawyer gives the response. You've got to love God, and you've got to love him this way, with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. But he doesn't stop there. He adds in something else. What else does he add? And you've got to love your neighbor how? As yourself. Now, I want you to think about the first part of that answer, loving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. You have to remember something about the Jewish tradition and the Jewish culture. That particular time, a good Jew would be citing what's called the Shema at least twice a day, when they would get up and before they go to bed. And the Shema is based on, it's still still used today, this prayer recitation. It was based on three passages of Scripture, two passages in Deuteronomy and one passage in Numbers. And both of the Deuteronomy passages say this. Here, it starts with, Here the Lord, our God is one. And then both of them say this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Deuteronomy 6, 4-9 has that. The second passage of the Shema, Deuteronomy 11, has the same thing. Love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And both of those passages in Deuteronomy talks about how you need to pass on that truth to the generations. As you walk along, talk about them. Talk about them in your homes, when you sit down, when you walk along the road. But then both passages say this, and when you lie down, and when you get up. And so it became a practice at that particular time that twice a day, when you got up and when you went to bed, you would recite the prayers of the Shema, which included love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. So the Jews would know that truth so very, very well. It was part of who they were. So I want you to think about the law for a moment, because Jesus asked the question in responding to the lawyer, what does the law say? John MacArthur tells us this about the law. You can take all of the law of God and and, uh, divide it into two categories. It either relates to man and God or to man and man. It's summed up in those two categories. And then he goes on to say, you can, you can squeeze it down even further, and the summation of all of the law of God in the Scriptures is really contained in its core in the Ten Commandments. And then he, he points out this observation. The first half of the Ten Commandments really has to do with our relationship to God. And the second half of the Ten Commandments has to do with our relationship 
with each other. Now you can take the Ten Commandments and squeeze them down even further. First, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Secondly, loving your neighbor as yourself. And if you do that well, you don't need any rules. Perfect love precedes, precludes all rules. So the law of God really deals with those two relationships, man to God and man to man. Think about the opening commandments of the Ten Commandments. She'll have no other gods, right? No graven images. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Worship the Lord in this kind of way. This talks about Sabbath worship. These commands are about what? Our relationship to God. The rest of the Ten Commandments are about our relationship with each other, right? How do you, honoring your father and mother. Don't murder. Adultery is wrong. Can't steal. Talks about bearing false witness, coveting each other's stuff, right? Our relationship with each other. So twice a day, a good Jew would, would be in the practice of remembering how to love God through the Shema. As he recited, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, this is an all-encompassing love. When you think about heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, it calls for us to love God with our emotions and with our will, with our deepest convictions, with our mind, with our intellect, our reason. And then there's the physical aspect, loving God with our abilities, with the strength that he's given to us. We are called to love God this way, with everything we've got all the time. With everything we've got all the time. So let's think about this answer that the, that the lawyer has given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, he's an expert in the law. That's the kind of lo- lawyer that he is. He's an expert in the law, and he's given a two-part answer. To love God perfectly with everything that you've got, all the time, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. You see, in God's law, it, Leviticus 19, verse 5, it talks about you have to love your neighbor. And how, how do you love your neighbor? You love your neighbor as yourself. So what do you think about the lawyer's answer to Jesus' question? Good answer? Are you there? Good answer? Okay, some nods, yeah, okay. Well, think about some of Jesus' teaching on that question. In Mark 12, verses 28 to 34, in that section, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then in Matthew 22, Jesus says this, on those two commands depend all the law and all the prophets. So in verse 28 of our story here, we read Jesus' evaluation of the lawyer's answer, and he says this. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Well, do what? Perfection. If you love God perfectly with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, all the time, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you're good to go. So what's the lawyer to do? In giving that kind of an answer, the lawyer has condemned himself. None of us can meet that standard. There's the standard, folks. How are we doing? The lawyer's in trouble. Look at verse 28. The lawyer's in trouble, and what do we read? Just after that, he's been condemned. 
Verse 29, seeking, desiring to what? Justify himself. Justify himself. The lawyer continues the debate by deflecting the, the answer to another question. And what's, what's the question? Well, who is my neighbor? He knows he's got to keep his facade, right? He's got to keep the outward appearance of his righteousness. So he tries to pull Jesus into another debate. Who is my neighbor? Well, he knows exactly. If, he's, if he really is an expert in the law, he knows exactly who his neighbor is. Love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, where it says that in Leviticus 19, if you just read down a few more verses, in verses 33 and 34 of that chapter, it instructs the Jews that a stranger or a foreigner should be treated as a countryman. And it goes on to say, you need to love them as yourself. For remember, you were strangers and foreigners in Egypt yourself. So if this guy was an expert in the law, and I'm sure he was, he knew exactly the answer to that question, but he didn't like it. Because God's word had already told him, your neighbor is a stranger. Your neighbor is a foreigner. So Jesus responds to that next question with this story. Do you see how this all fits together? The lawyer starts with the question, what do I have to do to inherit something that's from God's, for God's family? And rather than answering that directly, Jesus gets him to answer it by asking a question. The lawyer gives the answer, and of course the answer is about perfection, loving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, all the time, and to love your enemy yourself. Now the lawyer's stuck, verse 29, seeking to justify himself. Oh, who's my neighbor? Let's talk about that instead. Now we have the story of the Good Samaritan. Do you see how this is set? The Good Samaritan story is set into that context. Of course, the man is robbed of everything. He's beaten. And we're talking pummeled. That's the language that's here. Left for dead. We see two religious professionals, a Levite and a priest. Well, the priest would have been a descendant of Aaron, responsible to lead people in, in the worship of God. He would have known what he should have done walks by. The other religious professional, the Levite, would have been an assistant in the temple. Yeah. Again, a religious professional walks by. What's the point of that? Two religious professionals have no love. They have no love for their neighbor. They fail the kingdom test. Jesus is making it very clear that religious behavior, serving God in the temple, knowing God's love, isn't what qualifies you for the kingdom. Keep in mind how much the Samaritans and Jews despised each other. I mean, the Samaritans were, were considered by the Jews to be spiritual heretics and physical half-breeds. They were hated by the Jews. They were, they were enemies. And yet the hero of the story is an enemy. And that enemy gives maximum care. Look at verse 33. He sees the victim, the man beaten, left for dead, stripped of everything. He sees him, and he has compassion. Verse 34, not only does he see him and feel compassion, he does something about it. He comes to him, and how does he respond? He responds with lavish care for the immediate situation, the crisis that's there. But he also provides for his long-term recovery. 
binding his wounds with his own clothes. The man was stripped. How would you fix all that bleeding and all that mess? Pouring oil to clean and to, and to soothe the wounds and wine, his own, to sanitize. And then he brings him to an inn and he takes care of him all night. We see that. Verse 35 then tells us the next day, he stayed with the man all night. The next day, he provides for the long-term recovery. He gives two denarii, which would have taken care of one to two months of care for that man. And not only that, not only that, he provides an open tab. Whatever he needs, I'll take care of it. Back in those days, if you couldn't pay your debts, what would happen to you? You'd pay through it by becoming a slave. So this Samaritan, an enemy, takes care of that immediate crisis, but also provides, makes sure, rescues that man from, he had no money, he had no clothes, he had nothing. And this enemy takes care of it. It's over the top. The arch enemy sees the need and responds with all of his resources and pays for his care. Whatever else is needed. This is limitless love to a stranger to an enemy. This is not just about doing good deeds. Do you see? See the story? The whole reason, though, for the story of the Good Samaritan comes from that initial question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? So the answer is this. You got to love God perfectly, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time. And you got to love your enemy, including your worst enemy, as yourself, without limits, lavishly, sacrificially. Loving God any less violates the first commandment. How are we doing with that one? Loving the Lord God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving my neighbor without limits? How are we doing? Sometimes I can do that, occasionally, but never as myself. Do I qualify for heaven based on those requirements? Do you? Do you meet that standard? Well, if you do, you don't need grace. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ is pointing out. D.A. Carson goes on to say, not only do you need to understand the context of the story that surrounds the story of the Good Samaritan, but you need to understand what has now happened in the gospel account of Luke. In Luke chapter 9, it records in verse 51. Luke 9, 51, it says this, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Well, what was going to happen in Jerusalem? His death, the cross, his resurrection and ascension. From Luke 9, 51, we see him then resolutely headed towards the cross and everything that surrounds that. And as Jesus continues his journey to the cross, we continue to see him telling the good news of his gospel, but being rejected by hard hearts, rejecting him as the Messiah. So Jesus is driving home the point in the story that the lawyer is totally incapable of earning his way to eternal life. His Jewish heritage, his circumstances, sorry, his circumcision, his rituals, his sacrifice, his observance of laws, none of that qualified him. The lawyer is exposed, exposed for his self-righteousness, his selfish motives, 
his futile efforts on display for us to see. Bad lawyer, bad lawyer. Hey, wait a second. Isn't the lawyer in every one of us? Stop for a moment. Think about that. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says this, we are all, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We all fall short. We're all condemned. This is the problem of I justify. The lawyer wanted to justify himself. How often do you find yourself in that situation where you want to just say, ah, you know what, it's not my fault. Here's the reason, here's the excuse. Listen, I gotta tell you, many of you know that I like to fish, although I haven't fished for a while. Um, We've been a little bit busy, but I love to fish. And this is, a, this is a particular problem with fishermen. Right, Don? We have many excuses when we come home empty-handed. Oh, the wind was too strong. The conditions weren't right. The fish have moved. There wasn't enough bait. The water was too cold. The water was too hot. The pressure was too high. The pressure was too low. Tons of excuses. Tons of reasons why I can justify why I had a bad day fishing. Let's all be really honest, though, for a moment. When it comes to our relationship with God, we're all full of excuses. I want us to think about the two particular problems of the lawyer and see how much of the lawyer is in us. The scripture tells us he did two things. There was two things in his heart. Verse 25, his motive was what? To test Jesus. And then later on in verse 29, he was seeking to justify himself. I think we all do that. I think we all test the Lord, don't we? We test God by doing this. Did God really say that? I know God's word says that, but did he really say that? It doesn't line up with what I want, what I feel. Did God really mean what he said? Yeah, he said that, but I'm not sure that 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 really applies to me. And then when God tells us either the positive consequences of of being obedient to his word or the negative consequences, we think, you know what? I'm not sure that God's really going to do that. I'm not sure that really there is a hell. I'm not really sure that by following God's way that it's the best. We want to test God and his word. What about justification? I justify self-righteousness, self-justification. Come on, let's face it. We all do this. We play the exception clause. This does not really apply to me. Everybody else who needs it should listen to this. Out of this crowd of a thousand people here, I know somebody needs this word from the Lord. Thank goodness it's not me. Thank thank goodness the lawyer is not part of me. This story is for somebody else. The blame game, it's not my fault. The reason I did that, the reason I think this is because of this. The blame game, it's not my fault or really the self-righteousness game. I'm good, I'm okay, look at what I've done. I've been a member of Calvary Baptist Church for X number of years. I was baptized, I was born in the nursery. (laughs) I'm good. Think about how we started out and how we blew it back in Genesis three. Satan tempts us, Satan tempted Adam and Eve. Did God really say that? His question, right? What was Adam's excuse? Oh, the woman you gave me. 
the woman you gave me, blame it on her. Eve, it was the snake's fault. That snake, that nasty. Bottom line, let's ask this question this morning. Do you and do I, do we always love God perfectly? All my heart, all my soul, all my strength, all my mind, all the time? Do I love my neighbor as myself? And that's anyone is my neighbor, my enemy, a stranger, a foreigner, lavishly, without conditions, without limits? How can I do that? I'm not able. I need help. We're doomed, aren't we? If that's the standard, we're, we're all bankrupt. There's no way we can meet that expectation. Thanks be to God. Remember Luke 9? Jesus is resolutely on his journey to Jerusalem, resolutely on that path to the cross that then we praise God for ended with his resurrection and his ascension so that today as we've been worshiping Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God is seated at the right hand of God the Father, allowing us access to God the Father for those who are his children. Praise be to God for that for the cross. Praise God for the resurrection. It answers the problem of I justify if we see God justifies. From I justify to see the cross is what justifies. For Jesus Christ, of course, of course, he is the ultimate good Samaritan. Think about this. He sees us and he responds with compassion. He takes us up and he carries us along. He heals us. He pays the debt that we're unable to pay and frees us from slavery. The lawyer seeks to justify himself. And yet, the New Testament talks about a whole different type of justification. Justification is this change of status. It's actually a legal term where you're declared, I'm declared in the Lord Jesus Christ not guilty and fully righteous because of what Christ has done. It happens through faith alone, in Christ alone. D.A. Carson says this, justification is that act by which God justifies us. That is, God declares us to be just. It's something that God does. God justifies on the basis of what Christ has done. He bore our guilt. And now Christ's righteousness is ours. And our guilt is his. He paid for it on the cross. On that basis, God justifies the ungodly. Good news in this? Eternal life is guaranteed. The answer to the question that the lawyer asked, eternal life is guaranteed to God's children. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't do enough to get it. It's a glorious gift, a glorious gift of grace. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we become adopted into God's family, and he calls us what? Sons and daughters, and he invites us to call him Abba Father. What an amazing thing. We are in Christ as God's people, and he is in us. And so when Christ finishes the story and says, go and do likewise, the only way to do that, to love God the way he wants us to, is through Christ, and to love each other and our, our neighbors and our enemies is through Christ. But we're not perfect. We can't do it. We can't earn our salvation that way. 
But we, what we can do is respond to God's call in our lives. Go and do likewise. Really, how do I do that? Matthew 16, verse 24 says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Say that for a minute. Deny himself. Deny myself. A little harder to say. Deny. We're in a culture that says you want it, you get it. You need it, get it. It's all about me. It's all about I. Matthew 16, the Lord Jesus Christ says, if anyone would come after me, you want to be a Christ follower, here's the deal. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Deny myself, take up the cross and follow me. You see, just knowing religious stuff isn't enough. Having the right answers to the religious questions is not the right stuff. Religious behavior doesn't get us there. It's my goal this morning that every one of us would leave here saying this, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I'm going to invite the team to come on up. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Can you embrace that question fully this morning? Is that your testimony? If it's not, will you make it your testimony? If you're here this morning and you have never heard the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, or perhaps you've heard it, but like that lawyer, you've rejected it. You've sought to test God to justify yourself. This morning is the opportunity for you to make things right by calling on the Lord Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Praise God to forgive us our sins. If you're a believer this morning, will you deny yourself? Will you take up your cross and follow him so that you can say, I'm crucified with Christ, and therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me? Father, we have no other defense. Lord, without you, we are lost. We are doomed. We are bankrupt. We can't meet your standard. Oh, how we need you. Every hour, we need you, Lord. Lord, we've just sung about confessing, bowing here to find our rest in you, to find our hope in you, confessing you as Lord. Father, would you give us, through the Lord Jesus Christ, as we enter this next week, Lord, would we leave here with a fresh understanding that although your standard is totally unattainable for us, that you and your great love and compassion and mercy have reached out and provided a way, a way for us to have eternal life, a way for us to enjoy you now and forever, a way to live life. We praise you. My friends, I encourage you with the prayer that the Apostle Paul offered to the church of Thessalonica in First Thessalonians chapter 5. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's a promise. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. God bless you.